long-awaited medical study questions the power of prayer. Should you stop praying? Welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture readings' aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. Now, speaking of captured, Charles Whelan has captured my attention with his latest book, Naked Statistics, Stripping the Dread from the Data. Whelan uh, is a former correspondent for The Economist, and he's also the author of the New York Times bestselling Naked Economics. Naked Statistics is his second book, and not surprisingly, he has already written a third, Naked Money. Are we seeing a pattern here? And you might think, well, why in the world would anyone want to read a book on statistics? Good question. And while I can't speak for you, for me, it's because statistics have intimidated me for a long, long time, including when I had to take a graduate-level statistics course in order to enter into my doctoral studies, my Ph.D. studies. It bothered me then. It bothered me now. And as I sit in a devotional post I wrote earlier today, I'm tired of being pushed around by numbers. Anyway, Wheeling is helping me make sense of it all. I mean, his book is so insightful. It's interesting. And his humor comes through time and time again, which is a big plus when you're dealing with things like coefficients and probability and binary variables. This guy is making me think, and he's helping me become a better thinker. And by that, I mean in the critical thinking department. And tomorrow, I want to share a big aha moment I had a couple of days ago as he talked about the wage gap between men and women. Whoa. You talk about interesting Don't miss that. It is really, really going to be good. But this morning, on my walk, as I neared the end of his work, Whelan was discussing controlled experiments. What's a controlled experiment? What's a controlled study? It's testing a hypothesis by conducting an experiment. For example, does smoking cause cancer? Whelan writes, The scientific method dictates that if we are testing a scientific hypothesis, we should conduct a controlled experiment in which the variable of interest, in this case smoking, is the only thing that differs between the experimental group and the control group. So if we observe a marked difference in some outcome between the two groups, for example lung cancer, then we can safely infer that the variable of interest, in this case smoking, is what caused that outcome. Now we cannot do that kind of experiment on humans, he writes, because if our working hypothesis is that smoking causes cancer, it would be unethical to assign recent college graduates to two groups, smokers and non-smokers, and then see who has cancer at the 20th reunion. And then a couple hundred pages later, he writes, brilliant researchers, those who appreciably change our knowledge of the world are often individuals or teams who find creative ways to do controlled experiments. For instance, this is really good. Will going to Harvard change your life? Or does putting more police officers on the streets deter crime? Or do prayers offered by strangers improve post-surgical outcomes? He says, clever researchers find ways to compare some treatment, for example, going to Harvard, with the counterfactual, which is what would have happened in the absence of that treatment, i.e., if they hadn't gone to Harvard. I'm listening to all this, and I want you to know, Whelan had my attention at prayer 
and research. Listen to what he says about the analysis at that point. Randomized trials can be used to test some interesting phenomena. For example, do prayers offered by strangers improve post-surgical outcomes? Reasonable people have widely varying views on religion, but a study published in the American Heart Journal conducted a controlled study that examined whether patients recovering from heart bypass surgery would have fewer post-operative complications if a large group of strangers prayed for their safe and speedy recovery. The study involved 1,800 patients and members of three religious congregations from across the country. The patients, all of whom received coronary bypass surgery, were divided into three groups. One group was not prayed for. One group was prayed for and was told so. The third group was prayed for, but the participants in that group were told that they might or might not receive prayers, thereby controlling for a prayer placebo effect. Meanwhile, the members of the religious congregations were told to offer prayers for specific patients by first name and the first initial of their last name. For example, Charlie W. The congregants were given latitude in how they prayed, so long as the prayer included the phrase, for a successful surgery with a quick, healthy recovery and no complications. And... Will prayer be the cost-effective solution to America's health care challenges? Probably not. The researchers did not find any difference in the rate of complications within 30 days of surgery for those who were offered prayers compared with those who were not. Now, praying folks will find plenty to pick apart in that research. Even the New York Times summarized it by saying experts noted the study could not overcome perhaps the largest obstacle to prayer study, the unknown amount of prayer each person received from friends, families, and congregations around the world who pray daily for the sick and dying. Now, I'm reflecting on all this, and in some respects, two misconceptions stand out in light of this research. Misconception number one is the more people who pray, the more likely God will answer. In other words, it seems to me that some people feel that somehow if they can mobilize a prayer army, I'm going to get all my Facebook friends to pray for me, they can more effectively bend, if you will, God's will. By all means, encourage others to pray for you and with you. But the scriptures, man, they are replete with one-person prayer armies. I mean, you've got Moses and Gideon and Hannah and the widow of Luke 18 that Jesus commends who come to mind. And don't forget Jesus. I mean, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 22. Where is Jesus? He is by himself praying individually. So when it comes to prayer, more is great, but more is not necessary. You can be an army of one. So I'm listening to this, and my second misconception that I see is this. God will, or God should, answer on my timetable. And to that you know, open up the scriptures. Not so. I simply can't put God on a timetable, in sickness or in health. I turned to Frederick Godet, uh, my old, old, old spiritual mentor, to see what he had to say. And his words come to me from an 1893 commentary he wrote. And he says this, 
But is there not a very close correspondence between the duty of persevering prayer and the danger which the church runs of being overcome by the carnal slumber which has just been described in Luke 17. The Son of Man has been rejected. He has gone from view. The masses are plunged in gross worldliness. Men of God are becoming as rare as in Sodom. What is then the position of the church? That of a widow whose only weapon is incessant prayer. And he's referring to Luke 18.1, where Jesus said, let me give you a story to point out the factor that people should always pray and not give up. And he tells a story of this lone widow whose life is an example of the importance of persevering prayer. And Godet continues, it's only by means of this intense concentration that faith will be preserved. But such is precisely the disposition which Jesus fears may not be found even in the church in his return. Our duty is unceasing vigilance and prayer. Amen to that. When things get tough, faith doesn't bail. It perseveres in prayer. My aha moment is this. Faith often flies in the face of so-called research, and that's okay. The best researchers will tell you that correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. Actually, it generally doesn't equal causation. Yesterday, I received such an encouraging text from a friend of mine. His name is Matt DeBach. And Matt uh, sent me a picture of the church that he pastors. It said, 350 people. Hope Chapel is happening. Thanks a lot to SRC. And I was thrilled. You have to know the story of Hope Chapel Miami to appreciate his line. Matt started with just a handful of people worshiping God in that very same building that I saw in the picture that was packed out. And Matt had persevered for years. Had he prayed, expecting God to work immediately, he would have quit a long time ago. If he had operated on the researcher's timetable or listened to the researcher's conclusions, he would have said, why bother? Prayer doesn't work. But Matt knows the people of God persevere in faith, in prayer, in life, no matter what the latest research or the latest breaking news says. So, breaking news, a long-awaited medical study questions the power of prayer. Maybe you should stop praying. Well, maybe not. When it comes to prayer, I can be an army of one, and so can you. And and I can pray knowing God answers, maybe not according to my time frame, and maybe not according to my desire, but he always answers. And that's my thought on my walk with Charles Whelan and his exceptionally good book entitled Naked Statistics, Stripping the Dread from the Data. Now, here's my question. What are you going to do with that thought on your walk through life today? Where do you need to persevere in prayer.